Southern Bramble is a Patreon-supported podcast. We'd like to thank our top-tier patron supporters for sponsoring this episode. Pamela, Josie the Mountain Troll, and Billy, a Witch of the Lower Green Swamp. Thank you all so much. You're listening to Southern Bramble, a podcast of Crooked Ways. I'm Marshall, the Witch of Southern Light. And I'm Austin Bane X Bramble on Instagram. And today we have a very special guest with us. Please welcome Jesse Hathaway Diaz. Jesse Hathaway Diaz is a Tata Kimbanda of Kabula, Mavile, Ketula, Kia, and Jila. Uh, Kapula, Kabula, <laughs> Mavila, Ketula, Kia, and Najila is a semi public Kimbanda de Reis temple practicing Kimbanda separate from Umbanda, or the many candomblés. Their Kimbanda, the Angola lineage, and hold Kimbanda to a pragmatic and syncretic pact-based sorcery rooted in Afro-Brazilian cosmologies under the tutelage of Eshu and Pombajira, the devil and his wife, in all their forms and qualities. With an emphasis on community, hands-on training, personal empowerment, and social activism, the temple boasts a diverse and dedicated family of initiates, and the temple is located in the Hudson Valley, two hours upriver from New York City, in the shadow of the Catskill Mountains, where uh, they host an open uh, open events several times a year and regularly perform consultations, workings, initiations, and other services. Jesse, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? That was a really wonderful impromptu description of of the temple and Kimbanda. Thank you. Yeah, I, it's it's almost like it was written for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. Uh, thank you for being here. I'm really excited to chat with you today. I know this um, has been kind of a long time coming, so I'm I'm happy that you're here. Thank you. I don't understand time anyway, so it's just like yesterday you were talking about it. <laughs> uh, today we're here to talk about Kimbanda, which is something that I feel like is oh, I it literally, until relatively recently, it was a stump on English Wikipedia, just like this little paragraph maybe on what it was, and it was very unclear. Yeah. Um. And I, I'm wondering if you could tell us, for those who don't know, like, what is Kimbanda? I feel like that intro kind of gave a little taste of something. But what what is Kimbanda? Yeah. Um, well, you're also going to get as many answers to this as there are Kimbanderos, probably. Uh, and certainly as someone who is not Brazilian by birth and came to this tradition as an adult, um, it's been about, was it 14? A four, little over 14 years since uh, I was initiated uh, as a Tata. But um, I think... Kimbanda is, and this is going to upset some 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 people who consider themselves Kimbanderos or not, but Kimbanda is a, it's a syncretic pact-based system where you're working with, uh, mm, they call them katisus, which is like charmed ones or enchanted ones, uh, but generally uh, said to be Eshu, or all the male spirits are called Eshu, all the female spirits are called Bombajira. They're they are not a singular entity. They're legion unto themselves, and each of them is legion. Um, it's funny, you said succinctly or, or to summarize, which is not something I'm good at, so bear, bear with me. Um, but, okay, so you have the various Umbandas forming in the mm, 19th century, and as it moves towards the 20th century, Zelio Moraes uh, codifies Umbanda, which existed in various forms before that. You can't codify something if it didn't have roots somewhere else. But it's also too important to understand the roots of what was going on or the, the context of what was going on around the time he did this. So from 1890, uh, in addition to the history of Brazil as a slave nation in the New World, 
um, where this is a huge population of Africans are enslaved and brought to Brazil. The Brazilian proximity to West Africa, there's a phrase, um, Dios é grande, mas o mato é maior, that God is good, or God is great, but the forest is bigger, um, is a phrase from that slave period where um, the Portuguese soldiers, when slaves would escape into the forest, were like, I'm not going in there. There are, there are things that are going to try and kill me. Just go get new slaves, which is what Brazil did. So along the coast, Brazil settled these incredibly um, strong economic plantations um, as were common across the new world. But it allowed for slaves to escape into the jungle, um, into the forest, and also combine what they knew with indigenous lore that also had many of the slaves, especially from the Congo nation, had converted to Christianity before coming over. Um, this was part and parcel of the African trade system. Um, in order to trade with the Portuguese early on or to get beads or to get various goods, they converted to Christianity. Now they put their own spin on it and you can read about Quimpavita and like the, the Antonianism that happened there. But out of all of this, there was something that was called low spiritism um, by the 19, or by the 1800s that was coming around, um, which is basing its model on the spiritism that were forming here in the United States as well, um, as into why it was called that. But these groups were uh, going out into forests, lighting bonfires, going into cemeteries and getting possessed by various spirits that healed them. So there was a holistic view on health here about that if you are poor, you have a disease of, of money. If you, are, if you are physically ill, you have a disease of physical health. If you are sad, you have a disease of joy. And so this idea that in a natural state, when we are in tune with the world around us and in tune with our spirits, our ancestors, our gods, that blessings will flow towards a person. It's not something that is unnatural to be happy. It's not something unnatural to have your needs met, especially if you're contributing, working in part of the community. This is a community-based thing originally. So all of those impulses were were called Umbande is, is just the way, right? It just literally is like the way of how spirits are interacted with. The priest of Umbanda was called Kimbanda. It actually means healer or priest. Um, in the 1880s, there was Brazil got this really lovely idea called the Brancamento, which was about the whitening of Brazil. So they started importing Europeans to, to um, miscegenate and to somehow make the incredible spectrum of, of culture and race that was in Brazil to try and compete with the whiteness of Europe economically. And this experiment happened from around 1890-ish, I think 18, 1889, through the First World War. And that's what shut it off. But during that time period, there was this whole idea to um, bring things up to an acceptable European standard, even more than there was in the colonial days, because now they're trying to compete on a world stage. And I think it's important to place to place Umbanda in that context because Umbanda is happening in that first, or I guess the second decade of the 1900s when Celio is codifying it. He wants to find a way to bring everything that has touched Brazilian soil under one banner, under a spiritist banner at that. And spiritism is really an esoteric Christian kind of philosophy. It is not rooted in 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 Africa or it, it's exposure to African and Asian ideas that makes spiritism what it is, but it. It was still about uni European universalism, that idea that like, oh, uh, such and such is just God. Well, we're still comparing it to what your idea of God is. We're not we're not embracing the other versions. We're bringing it under an umbrella of of your idea of what universal is. So I think the impulse of Umbanda there and the way it was going was to to unite everything. But it was still born out of that cultural time period. 
you had uh, the Orisha and, and the Inkisi and the Fulduses, these different gods of the different Candomblés that had been formed, which were African villages, really. Like Tejero was an African, mini African village, which still had its religion intact and its food intact. And people moved in and trained in that compound in their spirituality. And that was a, a very different world than outside the Tejero. The impulse in Umbanda to incorporate everything was that they made the Orisha into saints. They were not fundamentalized in the way that the African Candomblés had uh, preserved the memory of how to worship these deities. They were a saint statue and offered flowers and candles, which is a lovely impulse, right? But ultimately, this is um, Umbanda incorporates Caboclos, which it was founded by a Caboclo spirit, uh, an indigenous spirit. Um, in possession, and then Pretos uh, Velos, uh, so the enslaved Black population was coming through in possession and offering their advice. You had children's spirits, you had uh, natural spirits like mermaids and, and mountain spirits coming through, and these deities of nature that came from Africa, um, the Orisha, the Fodusis, the, the Inkisi. So all of those things happened. You also had the incorporation of what they called the people of the street, the Pohodohua. And this type of... Mm, Spirit was considered darker, less evolved, and the spiritist ideals are about an evolution of a spirit. So if a spirit has done something negative in its lifetime, or if a person has done something negative in their lifetime, when they die, they have to work off that negative karma. And part of their negative karma is having to align themselves to a charitable cause and reaching out and saying, hi, I think that I should work with you and I can do horrible things or I can do good things, but let's see what your character is like. And Umbanda, this is the Umbanda way, and I'm not trying to belittle it, but it's a very fundamental difference between the way Umbanda views Kimbanda and the way Kimbanda de Haiz and the various Kimbandas that practice without that are. Um, Umbanda puts it as a system of the left. And so it becomes easily um, demonized in that way, in the saying of like, oh, these are devils and we have to be careful. You don't worship them. You don't uh, interact with them in certain ways. You have to make sure that they're being given light. They don't get paid for their jobs in blood like they used to. Um, they don't, we don't seat them in the same way. They're they're seated in crystals and in, in, in nice terracotta pristine jars, no blood. There was also a reaction to this way of working. So by the 1930s, when they were saying that in order for Candomblé to exist, you had to have a certain percentage of Yoruba, impulse and the umbandas were saying you had to hold up to the spiritist count of no blood no no they 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 love the herbs but they didn't like the blood they didn't like uh a lot of the songs were converted to a portuguese like a, a, a common parlance so that everybody could understand what was being said and umbanda also was going through this great democratization of its how it worked because it was publishing notebooks um uh, apostilas of, of how to be a spiritist center and because there was no inherent hierarchy, if you were someone who your spirit, usually a caboclo, uh, could possess you and give good advice and heal people, then you would start a temple. And there's also this economic part of that that get, enters into a lot of Latin American spirituality, which is kind of anathema to the alternative religious crowd in the United States, right? Where we have, there's this thing of like, we don't want to ask for money for things and like, oh, you shouldn't be paid for your services. This is still a, a contention in, in the United States in uh, manner. Um, but that trade of, I don't have money, but I'm gonna bring you a chicken, and therefore the priests can eat and share that with their family, is, is part and parcel of Latin American spirituality. By the 30s, there was a reaction against this, and you have various groups like the Omoloco and, and, and several that were not wanting to call themselves Umbanda because they wanted to preserve the more African way of seeding, sometimes using human remains, dirts, um, definitely animal sacrifice, um, in addition to don't take our language away because that's how our culture is embedded. And so they wanted to work with the Inkisi, the Orisha, in the way that they had always known. 
And so some people loved the kind of universalism of Umbanda, where you suddenly, yes, you had a sailor spirit knocking on your head in your sleep, and you could you could bring that marinero in, and they could do services, but you also wanted to keep the things that were more African or indigenous, African and indigenous. And so there's a divide that starts to happen. And in many ways, the people that kept the ways that were of blood and soil and bone were considered to be of the left that you're doing something that will attract bad spirits. And so we only want good spirits in here. And so this constant revisionism starts happening and dividing the various spiritualities based on their proximity to this, the white universalism of spiritism, um, as well as their proximity to the more African ways, which were preserved in the Candomblés most notably. Um, so Candomblé has different nations of origin. Kimbanda becomes the transition from the word for the, or transitions from the word for healer or priest into the people who are doing the dark stuff. And those people are Kimbanderos. What's interesting about early Umbanda is we have record of if, if Umbanda contained, and I'm not saying it doesn't, this is uh, trying to be ecumenical in this. I have great love of Umbanda and I have a lot of Umbandista friends. If Umbanda contained Orisha, why are the majority of people going to Candomblé coming from Umbanda? If Umbanda had Kimbanda, why were they sending people to Kimbanderos to go settle their issues in Pomagios and bring them back to the temple? So you see a similar thing in Espiritismo in the Caribbean, where if someone has a proclivity for the Orisha, they say, go get it, go get Santo, go make Ocha, and come back and still be an Espiritista. I think that's a, a healthy way to understand it, is that Espiritismo and Umbanda can provide an incredibly good container for all things to exist in. So you'll see in Umbanda practices now in Brazil, you will see um, Doreen Valiente and Gerald Gardner possessing people in some groups um, as they have a phalanx of the witches. And then you will see the Vikings come down in other groups. You see that Maria Leonza as well. So there's there's things are constantly becoming in as more spirits are now on the other side. Kimbanda became obsessed with these, these crossroads spirits, the Povodokua. And there's a large emphasis. So this is the summary, remember? <laughs> um, <laughs> in Candomblé, when you would serve the crossroads deity known as Eshu, who's the movement of all force, all Ashe, all, all the ability to make things happen happens because of this crossroads spirit who must be propitiated before all things begin. In Candomblé, as opposed to like the Cuban system where we bring Eshu into the house as El Egua, um, I'm also an Olorisha, so from the Cuban system, but I practice Brazilian Kimbanda. It's an it's a, it's a interesting dichotomy sometimes. But they would propitiate Eshu outside of the Hedo, at the actual crossroads. And so you would put food offerings and alcohol offerings and things there. And then of course, if you're a homeless person or someone walking by and you see a bottle of alcohol in the middle of the crossroads, you might just say, fuck it, I'm drinking it. So there's this also this both seen and unseen people that they felt they were also participating in the offerings of Eshu. These are the povo de Hua, the people of the street. So those spirits that are wandering or that are looking for work to do, assignments, might also hang around the, the offerings for Eshu. Now, Eshu is the Yoruba name in the Congo system and the, the Angola system is Bombonjila. So crossroads is what it means, or Lord of the Crossroads. Um, it is originally a male deity, as is Eshu, which has some female paths as well. But for some reason in Kimbanda, because of publishing most likely, all the female spirits became Pombajira, probably from the syncretic force of it being Pombajira, which means spinning dove, which sounds cute. Um, and from Bambunjila, the Congolese, to Eshu, so male and female spirits are there, and there are many types. They're known for being in cemeteries, in the woods, in the streets, in the cabaret, in the jazz nightlife that was now part of Rio de Janeiro and those clubs, the malandros, the, the thugs, the gangsters, um, as well as the indigenous African ancestry that were all there. So these spirits 
in, in Umbanda that worked in that way, working Banda. However, there were always people that worked those spirits without trying to chain them to the Orisha or to chain them to a sense of spiritual progress. And there, you get that in Omoloko and a few other branches of these Kimbandas uh, uh, that were also practiced by the Candomblés and various Umbanda temples, but as a specialization. So what was done in the normal Umbanda temple, they might not tell you that there are people there that are that have more of a Kimbanda practice. And the Eshus and Pombajiras often had a room that they were seated in. And they kind of preserved, even more than the Orisha, some of these original settlement ideas of the iron tools that have these kind of sigilized things and that offerings are put there to affect transitions, to go and get love, money, um, you know, prestige, all these things for their, or for defense especially. Because everyone knows about the danger of jealousy, evil eye, you know, anger, revenge, things like that. So the Eshus and Pombajiras became very prominently worshipped with that, or not worshipped, uh, propitiated for that. Um, by the 50s, you get books being published, and part of that wave in Latin America, remember the first books in Latin America that talked about magic openly were published by the Theosophical Society, so there's a large amount of theosophical um, levels of, of the astral plane and the physical plane and the, the mental plane and all those things. The reason those are so prominent in Latin American spirituality is because that was what was published um, and affected, so a lot of spiritist literature goes in, um, and they started creating in uh, these little pamphlets uh, by the 50s and 60s especially, that were appealing to a sense of, well, if it's legitimate, it has to be under a European, at least gloss, because we're writing in Portuguese. And there was some hints of this quote-unquote black magic, and we're going to use that in the racially charged way that it was intended um, in Brazil. So it was bringing certain things in, little bits of African magic in, without also going too deep, because they it was still guarded as like, well, that I really don't actually know what that means. And there are people that are. So let's kind of gloss it over because everybody wants this magic, but we don't know what it is. And you also have this history in Brazil of grimoires being um, slightly more publicly known about. And part of that is that in, you know, in, in 1492, with the expulsion of uh, the Moors and the Jews from, from Spain, um, you also just get a bunch of people who were heretical or doing weird things with magic that then were kicked out of the Iberian Peninsula out of Portugal and Spain. And so there are rumors that there are grimoires in the north in Cachimbo and some various different systems that are hundreds of page longer versions of grimoires than what we have publicly available because the families just kept practicing. So it's just notes and notes and notes and notes. So this idea of how to incorporate things. The other side with Kimbanda is Kimbanda comes from a Congolese worldview, in my opinion. There are many people that will argue that. But the worldview itself is heavily rooted in Congo Angola, as is much of Brazilian culture, even if other things are layered on that. And so even with the different waves of history within the Candomblés, where the Congolese got there first, they were the first uh, people enslaved, then the Jeji, the, so the, the Fombe people, and then the Yoruba last with, the, with, the, with certain empires falling. So each successive wave built upon what was already there. They didn't erase it. They didn't supplant it. They built upon the herbal lore, the architecture, the organization of these things, because why reinvent the wheel? Mm -hmm. So even the Yoruba temples incorporate Jeji and Congo things. But the Congo themselves are an incredibly agglutinating people. They, If it works, it's holy. And the whole idea of even where the word like Inkisi, as it, it's because it, it appears in the Caribbean, it appears in Brazilian culture, and obviously in, its, in the various Congolese nations, that are in Africa, but Inkisi itself doesn't even mean God. It means a man-made object that channels the divine. So the Bible is an Inkisi, a very strong one for many people. But there's also this bundle that you can sell that becomes quote unquote fetishized, literally, right? That's what they, that whole idea of the Portuguese fetish and this idea that commerce plus spirituality equals fetish. 
And so this bundle of something that contacts the same spirit over and over, if it can contact that spirit, then the spirit that comes through will be recognized, yes, as an Nkisi, it might be Mpungu, it might be divinity in various forms, but what you're working with are our ability to manipulate the sacred, to manipulate the world around us into constantly channeling something divine. So Kimbanda becomes, instead of saints syncretized with demons, it becomes uh, an incredibly effective tool, but oftentimes viewed very negatively of like those spirits are difficult, they're going to attract negative things, which they can. Um, so it has a reputation for, uh, and, and perhaps rightly so, for, for a little bit rougher lifestyle for uh, the, the the crazy people coming in off the street into your into your temple, into your house, into your life. And so there's a challenge there. And it really is, um, I think the devil's side is, is well-earned. And being um, a Mexican-American um, family, uh, I, I have a soft spot for syncretism as it goes. I think it's an incredibly um, rich tool that is both heaped upon us and part of our the way we have to work. And also one that can be a very valuable tool for um, getting things done in the light of day. Um, so I think it lends itself very well towards magic and towards witchcraft. I would argue, as many do, Kimbanda is often now by many people articulated as either Kim, uh, Brazilian Goisha or Brazilian witchcraft um, in the sense that you have these, these patrons that teach you how to go about interacting with the spirit world. And while things are brought under the law of Umbanda for Umbandistas, there's this charity work and this progression. If it's Kimbanda, we we bind ourselves under the princes of hell. And it is that that kind of weird thing is still there, even in the most African of houses. Um, so there are a few that will differ on that. But I think the syncretism and the ability to keep up with the Joneses, because again, a temple cannot exist if it doesn't have people coming in. Um, so it's this constant, how do you have clients? How do you have new things? There's land involved. There's taxes involved. There's that type of thing. So uh, this recreation of constant villages happens. Kimbanda gets a reputation for the loners, for the people that no one can deal with. There's hot tempers flashing. The spirits are not docile. Um, they're often dealt with like the, the magic of seduction or of revenge becomes very much tied to Kimbanda. But it's, I would argue that it's just, it's effective is what it is. It's also incredibly good at um, understanding spirit contact and how to develop that. Um, it is not all about possession, but possession does enter into it. And those various forms of what possession are. I'm going to stop myself there just so you can um, redirect me because I tend to. No, that was, that was great. You did answer my next question, which is like, what is the dichotomy or maybe even a pseudo dichotomy between Umbanda and Kimbanda? But it's really funny for me because I'll, scroll through you know that side of that little corner of instagram and it, it'll be really interesting to see candomblé houses and they're having full on you know you'll see the the santos and things like that and then just off into a little corner you'll see like a statue of maria padilla or Mia, maria Malambo or something like that and i find that interesting because that's and obviously because they're different, but it's like I living in Florida, I'm a lot more familiar with like Lukumi and things like that. So it's really interesting because most people in Lukumi don't have any idea or, or at least don't uh, interact with that at all. And why would they? Because it's a, a different system. But yeah. it, it's very interesting to me. But because you answered my next question, I'm going to throw a curveball at you. Um, you did mention that 
a lot of people will kind of then say that Kimbanda is Brazilian Goisha or Brazilian Brazil's take on Goisha where mm -hmm. uh Brazilian witchcraft do you feel like this system is because witchcraft is certainly there but like would you consider it witchcraft holistically by itself is that making sense Oh, well, we'd have to predicate what witchcraft is first there, right? So, like, that's, that's already, like, I've already... That's a whole other episode. <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 that's the rest of our lives of people arguing about that. Um, I would say mm -hmm. that the, the comparison there is, if you want to be completely superficial, what how would it look like witchcraft? There are pots with spirits in them that we pour substances on and offer blood to. Um, uh, you know, that that part is already part and parcel. It's hard to, for some people to get into but part of these traditions is always how do you make meat sacred you know like if you're going to kill like what happens to that life force so glossing over that but there's those things there is if you're going to go off of modern neo-pagan witchcraft as it's described there's this lord and lady thing that always happens and you literally have a predominant male spirit and a predominant female spirit of which are they truly male and female that's like you know if you really want to debate the sex of the angels go for it but it depends on whether you believe they are fully dead people and dead people only, or are they something more than that? But there is an intense um, uh, kind of bringing in of the occult. Like, look, the Baphomet becomes a, a, a prominent symbol for the for the Capeta, for for the Mayara, for these this symbolism of of everything in once that is Kimbanda. And you see these Brazilian adaptations of the, the Levi stat, uh, image of the Baphomet that also echo Congolese coded term, uh, things about the body, about how you bury mediators um, when, they're, when they've passed and, and choose to be an intercessor between the living and the dead. It also, his head is a trident, right, with horns and a flame, a torch coming out. Um, so there's a lot of things that if you look at that, it makes perfect sense why someone of a Congolese mindset, we go, like, okay, yeah, that's an object of power. We like it. Not animal, human, seated, flying, all those things are there, uh, male, female. So I, I guess the, the part that's witchcraft, there's a lot of chanting, singing. There's, there is possession. Um, there are, there's extensive herb knowledge. There's extensive relationship to divinities, but the divinities themselves are not what we work with. We're working with spirits. And in essence, you are trying to, to get to the point of an ancestralization in the way that many lines think with Eshon Pombajira, where they act as if they're your ancestors. And in some lines, they actually are considered your ancestors. There are some lines, especially when you go towards like the Congo and the Angola roots, where in order for your Eshon Pombajira to truly be there, it will merge with an ancestor or it is a witchy ancestor that is forgotten that is coming forward. Um, all of these names we give them, Eshu Capa Preta, um, Eshu Trancahua, Eshu Morcego, they sound really exotic, but they're it's Street Blocker, um, Bat, Mr. Midnight, Mr. Black Cape. They're just nicknames. And we learn more about how those spirits, that's the vocabulary that spirit chooses. And it starts to refine from there. And you are actually end up having a relationship with familiar spirits, spirits that will help you in every aspect of, of all the other magic you do. All divination, all interaction. You walk past a tree and your Eshu says, pay attention to this. You know, you could go and you say, I need to do a love spell. And your Eshu could be in your ears sitting on you the entire time you go for a walk in a park. You don't know what you're picking, but it says, pick that, turn around three times, go over there. And you, it's this constant relationship with that spirit that guides you. And those spirits teach you as much as your teachers. But it's always brought back into this kind of what are the practices of Kimbanda that allow you to then pass that on so other people can have those tools as well. So it ultimately gets to a point where grounded in the 
in the tools and the best practices of the Quimanderos of the last 100 years, 150 years, um, we then can propel it forward where it still is rooted in that tradition, but also must adapt to and innovate on the land that it is on. Um, and so I think that that part of a dynamic witchcraft is, is incredibly important. Uh, as far as like Brazilian Goisha, I think the important thing is that the syncretization with, syncretization with demons um, that happens, they're primarily from the Grimoireum Verum, according to Fontanelle, um, in the in the 60s. However, you also get people then by the 60s and 70s invoking Baal, invoking Amaimon, Payman, as the if they were Eshus, into this form. So rather than it just be... Um, uh, done the way that it is in Emmanuel, we're looking at the African way, which is chalk and song and blood. So draw the sigil, which is a punto hiscado, a scratched point, and that is met and always paired with a punto cantado. So you must chant, you must invoke to animate the chalk that is there. That can be then, that is the body of the spirit and you can feed it. You can offer blood, you can put other things on it. You could stand over it and take a bath and get possessed by it. You see similar comparisons to that maybe in like Trinidadian Obia with the the um the banquets the Kabbalah banquets where you're you're eating off of a plate for a demon and as you ingest it and you're sitting over the 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 sigil of the demon on the chair and you might get possessed and there is someone guiding that possession and getting how that goes so I think that there's a blurring line of syncretism there and you can see it be Jake Stratton Kent proposed this and talked about this the other way right and that's been both a blessing and a criticism by many of like looking at the Grimoire and Verum spirits and kind of filling in some of the things with what happens in Brazil, specifically with Kimbanda, and making them go back and forth. And because of those syncretisms, there are spirits like Sechi Sombras, who the only descriptions we have of him as an issue are directly from the Grimoire and Verum, uh, like plagiarized. <laughs> and he is a spirit that in interacts as an issue in many temples, but his description and his sigil come from the Grimoire and Verum. So those, even the Kimbanda Eshu is like, if that's the symbol you're going to call me by, sure, whatever, let's do it. Um, and and those puntos hiscados are negotiated or drawn by the spirits themselves. So if you look at them, some of the older ones, you can actually tell the cosmology of what's being drawn in there, and it's explaining what the spirit does. But you have to know how to read them. There are also ones in in there are two ways to even go about that. I, I, I warned you all, babble. But you can in some temples you draw the point and you call the spirit and it will affirm it. Um, but you'll hear in some puntos where it says you know, affirm your point, which is where you call the spirit, it comes down and it draws its point to tell you who it is. And part of that is that in the early days of a spirit possession, and especially in the early days of Umbanda, the spirit would come down snarling and growling and couldn't speak. And it had to be taught how to be civilized. It had to be taught how to speak Portuguese well. And now, whatever, it's there's it's a free-for-all. Some come down snarling, some come down very refined, some speak French or Arabic or Latin. But it's it really is... Um, I don't think Kimbanda, especially from the spirit of the 70s through the early 2000s, viewed itself as exclusively working with Brazilian spirits in any way, shape, or form, um, or specifically just a Congolese inheritance. It was using everything that came to Africa to work with every spirit that came through. And then also within Umbanda, there's codifications of this spirit comes from this region of France in the 1600s, where it was a wealthy baron, and it you know raped this number of women and committed these horrible acts. And now it's working off penance as your personal devil. Um, and so I still think all spirits lie. I think language is all a lie in the wonderful way that it's always, that's language. You know, the limits of the truth are defined by it. So is that true for that one spirit? Maybe. Is it true for the spirit that's talking to you? I think those background stories are, are wonderful. But if a spirit only comes down and gives you background stories, you know, then it's not doing very much. Um, what does it do? How did it help you right. is more important. It doesn't matter about the the where it came from. 
at, at some point it's like you gotta have to be like who cares about all that and like what is it actually impacting in your life is it making you money or is it you know finding your true love or whatever or whatever the goal is or is it just keep giving you background stories or is it you know leaving you destitute because sometimes they do that too and it's yeah. like oh well i guess i fucked up or somebody fucked up or even um is it always agreeing with you is a big sign in spirit work across the board if a spirit never contradicts you mm -hmm. it is blowing smoke up your ass yeah. and like this is a big thing for us is those spirits will rip you to pieces they will read you to filth in front of a room if you are not true with yourself which is a big thing in kimbanda of you can be whatever you are don't be something you're not mm -hmm. or you will regret you will you will get clapped <laughs> they will rake at you they will smell it like it's the most delectable dish cooking um and there's various forms of that and we train the body we train our own body our own spirits to not necessarily come down without tact but we also want the truth. And that's a part of the training process of why people initiate, why they might join a temple, as opposed to deal with it all on their own, which is a totally valid way. I mean, like, if you want to go to the crossroads and smash a bottle of alcohol and call the devil, good on you. Um, I, I also want to make sure that uh, I'm not fucking myself up too much um, if I'm going to do that. And that's from experience <laughs> of having <laughs> fucked myself up with things in the past. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So coming into this, this is very interesting. I know nothing. I have known nothing about Kimbada. This is my first experience really absorbing everything you've been saying. I've been listening with like um, sponge-like mentality. The way in which you described it as syncretic, I think made sense to me in the beginning, but until you begin to deeply describe it, the synchronicity with which a clash of cultures came together. I, I know this is side note. I remember when I was younger, my um, English teacher always put quotes up on the board every day, and one of them was, uh, uh, "Creativity is what happens when a clash of, with a clash of ideas, or something like that." And it was it was from Donatella Versace, and she said, I, "I thought of you when I put that up there," which I appreciated. <laughs> she knew I was a total queer really early on. She said, she, "She said <laughs> this one's for Marshall," and I loved it because it and it really obviously it stuck with me because it's so many years later, and. I'm seeing this very much described in the way you're describing this entire system and how it was built with this clash of cultures from so many different places coming together, different languages, different ideas, and the way in which the two systems of, of as you said, it was uh, of, of uh, Umbanda versus Kimbanda, and the way in which there was almost like a level of, I was recognizing some bits of animism as you were describing like the spirit of this, but the, this would be more of like a thing or an idea or a concept. I do that heavily in my craft. And I was noticing some, some very big um, uh, similarities there. And it makes me think about like, I live in Texas and it's so funny when you think about like Southern culture in general and the way in which certain types of, of, homegrown magical systems have kind of built up within the south of the United States. Maybe it looks very, very different in, say, Louisiana versus Georgia versus Florida and in Texas. And of course, in Texas, it takes on a lot more of a, a Hispanic and Latino culture. So you get a little bit more of that, like, hoodoo looks different in Texas, which is, of course, an American creation. Um, and, we, and we know the history of that, but it looks different in Texas than it does over in, in like Louisiana or Georgia because of its connection to the landscape of like Mexico, which brings up more different language, more culture. It shapes it. And the way you're describing this, 
I'm putting this together in my head and maybe I'm explaining it because I know nothing about this and I'm learning it and I'm loving it. I'm seeing this collection of cultures come together and building this new system not even really new, like I guess the system is new, but like the histories that create it come from from so many long-term cultures. And I think that's something that's so fascinating. And I think that a lot of the online discussion, a lot of us as practitioners have in the quote unquote community <laughs> is that a lot of us sometimes feel this idea of like uh, 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 imposter syndrome and um uh, this idea that sometimes maybe is what I'm doing okay because it's my UPG or because this is my my experience, the spirit relationship that I'm having that no one else seems to be having. And what you're describing is a, in my opinion, not only a beautiful validation, but a confirmation of absolutely these experiences are what we are building so many different ideas that come together to create what we've what we've created, if that makes sense. I think yeah. a lot of times, sometimes, a lot of times, sometimes there are situations where we kind of like question ourselves. Like, I know I've had situations in the past. I definitely don't need more because I've had too many experiences where I kind of ask myself, like, did I make this up or was I inspired by this? And I'm like, what if it for one, if it's working, what's the difference? But two, the muse and the inspiration that inspirited that idea alone is a spirit that I'm working with. Yes. And that's kind of what was jumping out with what you were talking about, that that synchronicity of recognizing that the things around me that I'm interacting with don't necessarily have to be a specific spirit written about in an ancient book. These are living things. These are living experiences and we're interacting with them on a daily basis. Yes. At, at all times. I think um, the study of possession is a big, is a big, you know, this might. Um, and it's not always as exorcisty as people like to emphasize. No, <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll put it this way, that Please. inspiration and creativity, when you go into invocation of the muse in a mm -hmm. European parlance, this is possession. You're asking yes. for possession by the muse. And sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not. Yes. And, you know, to quote Tori Amos, sometimes she's out having a, a strawberry shake and you're mm -hmm. fucked. Like it's, it is, it is what it is. But also I'll put it this way. I, I'm certain most witches, but I'm just judging. I don't know you well. I know Austin better, but like we've all been possessed by rage. Oh, there it, it takes over fully, and you are not even fully cognizant of who you are or what you are. You mm -hmm. are rage, and your subsequent possessions by rage, you can either give into it more, or you can go. I gotta put a container on this shit. Mm -hmm. Like I gotta be able to be like, okay, I need to walk away, which is training your body to not be allow itself to do the violent parts that can come out of rage because rage can be turned into clarity and anger, you know, in this way of like, how can I utilize this to move forward? And I would compare that very strongly to what Kimbanda is doing. These impulses of like, there's an issue that is very good at betrayal or another one that's good at exacting oaths or another one that's just the snotty study of everything and how that incorporates into your life <laughs> is partly on you. So the impulse is never impure even if it manifests in a very, you know, destructive way. But we have a responsibility as quimanderos, as witches, in that we get to help guide how these spirits manifest in the world, mm. not only in the objects we build, not only in what, how we speak and talk about them, but also in our very bodies. And our bodies become the battlefield for which we are asserting our own divinity, our own spark of consciousness as the thing that can allow 
for something else to come in. Mm -hmm. And so if we go even back to the Congolese framework of looking at Basimbi and nature spirits, that they have gone out of the reincarnation cycle somehow. So in a Congolese and, and much of Western and Central African worldview, car in reincarnation happens along family lines. You will be your own great, 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 great grandchild. Now, what does that mean for us queer people? Well, in that sense, in, in, in those times, who you have sex with is less important than that you have children. And in, in a polygamous culture like the Yoruba, for example, you could be a, a male head of a household who has a female and a wife and a second and third female wife. And you might take in a male husband at some point. Does that mean you're sleeping with him? No, it means that he's sleeping with you. Otherwise, you're producing more children on your compound to make more work happen, to make your empire bigger. Now, that's a different completely understanding of, of how marriage and constructs work. But similarly, if you are out of that incarnation cycle and you are now in, you found a tree or a rock you can go into and somebody walks by, they can hear you be like, hey, hey, you want some help? Like, I know how to help you. Give me a body. So this idea of seeding spirits is also born out of this need to help a spirit that is not able to incarnate in human form anymore, except through bouts of possession or by giving it a physical body with things to give it agency. So by this explanation, which is not accepted by every Kimon, I'm not proposing that. But if you look to those, 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 um, especially the scholastic uh, explorations by Fukiao and by McGaffey probably are the big ones there. They will talk about you want to give this spirit a con. It's a contract. What is this spirit? It's not. It's not for me. Um, it's not a charity that it's been assigned by the lords of karma in its job to become, you know, going towards the light Carol Ann. It wants something <laughs> from us. So it wants a body. It wants to have the pleasures of a human body. It wants mm -hmm. to have seat offerings and force. And it might have an addiction towards being listened to and being given advice too, because a lot of that happens. Some spirits are very talkative. Others will only speak when you ask them specific questions. But in addition to the huge amounts of tobacco and alcohol that we do use, and so that's one of the draw the draws of people that are like, oh, I get to smoke and drink in this? Sure. But you also, alcohol is about clarity. Alcohol is about sanit sanitizing the mouth so that your prayers are stronger, so that your words are stronger, so that your commands are stronger. And to get you just a little bit tipsy so that you believe you have the ability to call spirits. But anything past that where you start getting drunk, there, you're now their playground. And similar, so these this thing where they can come in. Um, I have an elder who is uh, one of my favorite phrases he's ever said, Pipe Balo has said, all of us are possessed at all times. Most of the time with our own consciousness. And when you put things in that way, we start to understand how this works. Minor spirits come in, rage, jealousy. Emotions can get to the point where they are demons, right? And this whole, even on a, on a Buddhist take of like inner demon, outer demon doesn't matter. Rage is an inner demon. Did it come from somewhere? It doesn't matter at that point because we've got to deal with it. As opposed to something coming after us with a machete that is like in the woods waiting for us. That's got little horns and a tail. Sure, that's an outer demon. But they're both things you got to deal with. So I like that in the, the impulse there is how do I line up my, my ducks in a row? Um, uh, I mean the metaphor, not necessarily physical ducks, but so that you can do what you want and have greater agency. For me, Kimbanda is about agency. Kimbanda is, is a vow that the only thing you will ever be slave to are the consequences of your actions. So if you want the thing, Kimbanda is not necessarily a good system to go for readings to see what's going to happen. It's good for going to see what could happen and how can I influence it? Because those spirits will tell you, I can do that, but it's going to take goats, 40 bottles of champagne, 30 meters of red cloth, a bunch of these other things in about six months. 
Or you could do this less difficult thing, and it's, you know, a cigarette and a candle. And it presents options and how those things are influenced. Is it always just as simple as a contractual? Not necessarily, but it is always contractual. It's just not always as simple as, as, as a contract. And as you work with these spirits, there is uh, an effect on the body. There is a training both of them and of you, and that you progress in your understanding of each other, which from a Kimbanda Chais uh, perspective, with Kimbanda of the root, um, we're looking at how these spirits influence us and how we influence them to the point where you're getting your spirit to the point where it knows what you would expect of how, uh, how you want to act in the world. It's not going to go do a bunch of things without your permission, but it will make suggestions. When you first come into an experience with a spirit, it might offer a bunch of things that you would be like, whoa, I don't know if I want to do that. Like mm -hmm. it will be the voice in your ear when you first hear it, that you're at work and your boss does something stupid. It's like, well, we could kill your boss. <laughs> so, you want to do that? We could, yeah, it's easy. But that and that, and they're gone. Sure, that is an answer to the solution, but you have to figure out what your relationship with that is. No, we don't do that. So Kimbanda is not a good thing to be on your knees for. You know, there's, it's the joke, right? This the non-servium is there. Um, you can be on your knees in other ways. But <laughs> you still have to, it's a wrestling with it. It's it's a wrestling with the angel across the board. And I that's why I think the devil is the a good syncretism there. It just so happens that when we do divination to help the person figure out their path in Kimbanda, or even a spirit that agrees to do a working for them, we're giving them a, a devil and a, a, a lady devil that will be so allied to parts of who they are that they won't cause conflict as much as if we just said, here's some other random spirit that you like. And a lot of times the ones that we like the most are not the healthiest for us. It's like any relationship. So like the, the <laughs> yeah, or, or every boyfriend in the past, but fair, uh, very fair. It, 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 it's just, you have to acknowledge your own role in this. The devil made you do it because you asked him to make you do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a difference there. So there is, I don't, agency is key. It doesn't get taken away. But I do think, although Kimbanda views itself as everybody is able to work with it, not everybody is a Kimbandero. Um, and that is, that's fine. Some people go into it for defense and they have their Eshu and their Pomojira and they know what that is and they proceed in other systems. Many of us are practicing multiple systems at once, but there's a shift that happens with Kimbanda and it has to be there. And it's, there's, you're training for understanding your role in what you're asking for and how to go about doing it, how to harness things to make things happen. There's, um, there's so much more. It's interesting. My my public Kimbanda has, is about as old as, as as my initiation. I first was exposed to Umbanda as a teenager, and then again, um, uh, well, still a teenager, 18, 19 in New Jersey and going to Umbanda temples there. Um, and I was 29 when I when I went into Kimbanda fully. Um, so in the last 14 years, I went from seeing only the Candomblé or high Umbanda forms of of um kimbanda shown on youtube where everybody's in these giant uh, beautiful dresses they're just like hoop skirts out the wazoo but the kimbanda that i was initiated into is kimbanda de Haiz. we're in street clothes we might be in a single color for certain ceremonies but for the most part we're in street clothes in somebody's shack and you're talking to spirits and somebody might get possessed and they're not going to change into a hoop skirt they're just going to smoke a cigarette and have a glass and they're going to give good advice and life goes on and i didn't even see spirits seated in vessels that look like the vessels that i knew I had to, it was completely on, I'm, this is just, it was old school. Like you just trust that this is what's going on and this is how it's done. And you meet other people. As the years progressed, eventually maybe five, four or five years ago, I started seeing 
other temples that were of a Dehais lineage, especially from the Kimado Nago, Kimado Musulamin, Kimado Dangola, you see them online. It was like, that looks like the spirit pot I know. And they are acting like people I know. Like, okay, great. Sometimes we get really these hyper masculine expressions. And sometimes you get these still very much like, let's emphasize the seduction side and people are still being dressed. But there was this beautiful convergence that started happening on Instagram and YouTube where there was much more out there. There were not the Pontos Hiscados and the Pontos Cantados available online the way that they are now. If you are told an Eshu, you can enter it into YouTube and you can probably find anywhere from two to 4,000 videos that are singing to that spirit and hearing people singing to that spirit. And it's not like the songs are that amazing. They're beautiful. Don't get me wrong. It's part of the part of our huge culture that's out there. But it's like, when you come to the temple, do good things. Mr. Black Cape is at the crossroads. He's my best friend. He's my advocate. Um, uh, I offered you uh, a bottle of champagne and you performed miracles. And it's being sung in Portuguese to a sometimes horrible, sometimes amazing melody. And people are clapping and drumming and someone gets possessed when that song is sung. You know, it's, it's so I think there's also the exotification is something to kind of pull back from. I think one of the, the things that it works so well with for Brazilians and Brazilian culture is Brazilians, like most cultures, aren't incredibly direct. You would think from Kimbanda they are, but it's because the system is there that it's showing that they want the directness. They want that, that please tell me to my face type of thing uh, within a system, within a context. But that it is so democratized in its ability to be done, meaning the, the information's out there, the songs are out there more and more. It's in the common parlance. If you're so, with someone who speaks Portuguese, they will be able to predict what the ponto is going to sing as you're singing it. The melodies aren't complex. It's call and response. It's not meant to be barbaric names, even when it's the, even when the African parts are sung. And that did happen where the African words were so corrupted that sometimes you're like, what is this song? I don't know. And a Kondoble Angola person will be like, well, that sounds kind of like this song, but the words are half different. And then you're like, oh, this original song is about a big dick spirit going to a village and drinking a lot. That makes sense why we would sing that in Kimbanda. Um, and you're like, okay, well, cool. That's the main song. And then you hear it. It's I I guess I'm emphasizing is part of it is the lack of exotification that happens, but of course that sneaks in anyway. You know, conspicuous consumption. We want to give expensive silks and scarves and daggers and all these things to these spirits, but at the end of the day, it's a simple cigarette, um, a glass of the cheapest alcohol, because cachaça in Brazil is a dollar or two, and here the same brands that are a dollar or two are twenty to thirty dollars. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, you could use Georgie vodka. I'm not brand promoting, but like use the cheapest shit you could find and it will call a spirit. And other people are like, if you give cheap shit to a spirit, you're going to get cheap results. So go get a nice whiskey. You're like, okay, well, try all these things out. Mm -hmm. But they also don't, um, one of my favorite stories of, of hearsay from two different people experiencing this, of being told a spirit they should work with and then going to a crossroad and putting down a dozen roses and cigarettes every week trying it. Well, nothing happened. I sang, I did. And after seven weeks of offerings, they finally hear the exact same thing, two people at different times. Your Portuguese is shit. Keep singing. Because the spirit they were calling was there the whole time. She just was like, I'm not going to reveal myself for this shit. I don't know who you are. You know, here's like one dozen roses and a, and a cigarette is at a bottom. A little bit of cheap bubbly is supposed to what? Make me come and be your servant? No, 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 sweetie. And the other side, like I would say one of the fundamental differences is we burn our sigils all the time. We are happy to return them to the fiery realm because they are happy there. That is dancing and laughter. So there is no torture with them in the same way. Um, they are not bound to the pot or else they wouldn't be able to work. They just live in the pot. Difference. Like a spirit house. Spirit, absolutely. And that spirit house could be a statue because we can load the statue. Or it might be 
Um, in the same way that that spirit could have inhabited a rock or a tree, it can inhabit that statue, sure. They're all dressed a little bit like 40 superheroes or 50 superheroes in their little tidy, uh, tight panties. Um, but sometimes that moves towards a more, quote-unquote, traditional house, a more uh, a benga and a sentimento, um, a seated spirit. I, again, I, I'm all for tradition. I'm all for initiation. I'm all for these traditional temple systems. I'm also for that if the spirits have taught you how to do something and it's working, then as long as you're not worried about publicly publicly being validated, being like, oh, I'm on par with you. No, you're not on par with those other temples that have been there for 80 years or 100 years and have thousands. It's just, that's fact. Your magic may be on par though. So why the fuck are you worried? Hmm. And I still, you know, I'll paraphrase Chumley in that if like, if, if you call the gods and they come, who can say shit but so much of modern culture is about that validation online of like oh i have this and now there's this creation of canon through writing a book you can write a horrible book but as long as the first person to write it on that subject now everybody's got to base it on that nah. i'm curious because we keep talking about issues and pompajuras and you had brought it up um where issue get oftentimes just pegged haha, as uh male uh the male demons mm -hmm. and the pombajera are the lady demons yeah um and you can kind of read between the lines in a way if you know what you're looking for um that these spirits and their gender which again like argue argue the sex of an angel um is very complicated or at least not as defined by a western binary of male and female mm -hmm. and i'm wondering if you can go into that a little bit more um because kimbanda and some interesting things and there's more context to it but like if you're looking again through instagram you'll you'll often see men dressed as their pombajira and it, it's not just necessarily because men are trying to cross dress because it's fun um within the the temple but there is something there and i'm wondering if you can go into that yeah i think um there is a lot to be said for like this this kind of queering of 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 the, that polarity across the board, but it also still exists there in a very polarized way um, in the sense that, um, so for instance, in most Brazilian traditions, Afro-Brazilian traditions, in order to initiate someone, you must be able to be possessed. Not everybody can be possessed, um, but you must at least by more than just your consciousness, if we're gonna follow that logic, but you have to allow, be able to allow something to come in because it's not a, it's not a human that initiates others, it's spirit. Um, a human is the tool. But there's also this belief pervasive in Brazilian culture until probably recently that if you do mount, you must be able to be penetrated by a penis in real life too, because it's the God penetrating you. So there's a whole bunch of studies into this and possession studies that are there of the God, it mounts you, right? This is the terminology we use. So whether it's a male or female God, it still is taking the active male role in how it approaches you. And we see this in the word for mount in Brazil, you'll recognize in the Lukumi system where we use it for the first year is Yawo in the Yoruba houses. Those are the mounts. They're the brides. Doesn't matter if you're male or female, you are the bride to the God. The God is the force that enters you. So there's already a interesting polarity there that is beyond the physical gender, um, beyond the physical sex, whatever those, whatever those assignments are. I think there is... So there's this stereotype that if you're in Candomblé, if you're in Umbanda, you must be gay. 
if you're if you're mounting all these spirits that no straight man would allow himself to be ridden by a spirit and the straight men traditionally became drummers because drummers don't get mounted in a lot of the traditional systems because you want someone who can stay there the whole time and be present actually working the drum um same people that work the kitchen they're not mounts the mounts are the people that are mounting spirits in front of everybody else as soon as they have assigned helpers that don't mount, there there is a criticism from some of the conservative houses especially like of Candomblé and Bahia where they look at how Candomblé is done in Rio or Sao Paulo um and they would say this is a drag show you know like because um we know for a fact who the first priest was that dressed as their Orisha in female clothes was Josina de Gomea and he was criticized heavily for it now he was openly gay he was I think we think the first openly gay Candomblé head however in addition to the Brazilian word for um, cross-dresser being travesti, uh, which comes from transvestite, but it sounds like travesty um, in English. Um, and there's a lot of reading possibilities in that. Um, you do see people being dressed up as their spirits more and more as the temples gain this kind of, um, as as wealth comes in and it's like, okay, here's the hoop skirts that belong to Maria Padilla. And the the head of the compound, the one that's running everything, their spirit comes down more than anybody else's. So it has a vocabulary of things. Someone say, you fulfill this thing for me. I'm having a new outfit made for you, you know, in red with the emblazoned roses all over it. So it became a more common thing for people to dress as the spirit that was down because it also brings people in. There's a whole spectacle to it. Is it necessary? No, but it is something that's actively embraced in many of the houses. And it's heavily criticized by a lot of Brazilians and the evangelicals and, the, and just the culture in general. Like, okay, that's that weird faggotry that's going over on in those temples. Um, they're confusing everything because of the devil. It's coming in in all its forms. Um, Kimbanda does, and, and the lineage that I practice and come from, we do identify a male and a female spirit for everyone. In some houses, they only identified same gendered. Um, so if you're a male, they're going to find a male spirit for you. If they're a female, if you're presenting as female, they're going to find a, a female spirit for you. Um, there's a different relationship with transness in Brazil than there is in the States. Um, there's a longer history of openness about it, but not necessarily acceptance. And that's that's its own thing too. It's not like um, there's a, in, in suddenly a safety there for, for trans people in Brazil that um, is just there by nature of it being Brazil. I do think there's a, a longer history of openness about that. Um, if you are a male who gets possessed by your pombajira more, they're going to say you're gay, regardless of whether or not you actually are. If you're a, a woman who gets possessed by her Eshimor, they're going to say you're gay. And that's just popular parlance. Does that mean it's true? No. But there's this constant fucking with the solidity of all that that's there. And many of us get possessed by either. And so it's like, okay, figure it out now. Um, you know, it's, it's, and then they'll call you an uh, puta astral, right? An astral whore, because you get possessed by everybody and everything. Um, so I think that there is an interesting model for, uh, Querying that 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 polarity. I also think that it's um, when it's not grounded in the practice or the tradition, it's it's harder to know what the reality of this that is on the ground. I do think that the expression of um, quote unquote those male and female polarities is further complicated by the fact that there are some issues that act much more passively, especially if the bombajira is more warrior or queen like. Um, in that person's makeup. So you might have a queen pombajira be someone's personal pombajira, and she is commanding, she bossy, and by all stereotypes is male, but she happens to be a pombajira and likes sweet smelling things and likes a little bit of perfume up in her business as opposed to just sulfur and blood and gore. And so uh, half the times the male 
female divide seems to be more about is there a like of like sweet things and just a little bit more about enjoyment than just pure aggression. And so you get this stereotype of that Pombajira deals with forces of attraction and sensuality and Eshu deals with um, uh, aggression heavily. But both spirits are Eshu. Pombajira used to be called Eshu Pombajira. And then she was Eshu Pombajira and the Kualidaji would be listed after that. So they are all primarily Eshu. And they are all, that Eshu takes its name from that same Yoruba deity of the crossroads. In a lot of the Orisha traditions and a lot of the Kandomblays, you offer a spirit, the animal that is of the gender of the spirit, because it captures some of the quality of it. So you offer a female goat to a female spirit. There are exceptions to that, and there are notable exceptions to that, uh, similar in Lukumi. However, in Kimbanda, we go by gradation of force. So a dove is a minor offering. Um, because it's a cooler offering. And also a dove has no gallbladder, so the meat can never be ruined when you're processing it, all the way up to a rooster and other animals beyond that. But edible animals, right? We're dealing with things that you eat because eating is part of it. Um, uh, controversially or not, that's just the history of it. But a rooster is a male offering that is offered still to Pumbajira. She's still going to ask for this heightened, like this is the animal of the crossroads that crows, that, that signals the betrayal of St. Peter, right? That is so embedded in Catholic culture of like, did you just betray yourself by asking for this? Like, what are, what, what are we on here? So all that to say is that some Pumbajiras act more like what we would think an issue would act like. Some issues act similar to what a Pombajira would be like. What are those perceptions of gender? How are they changing from 1930s, you know, uh, heyday of, of club life in, in Rio with jazz clubs through to the 70s and the re-Africanization that happened where people started pulling back to the 2000s where more literature came out about Maria Padilla as an actual uh, historical figure and a witch, a witch goddess um, within Spain um, to pushing forward as more gets published in English and we get that back tributions and things that are going back and forth. YouTube, the visibility of like, well, that temple has nice things. So now I have to have nice things if I'm going to compete with that temple um, versus the old people who are just, they have a closet somewhere where there's a, there's an assentimental there and no one knows they even have it, but they're making sure that it gets its two roosters a year and it protects their family. So you get the full spectrum of what that can be from everything from the most public to the most private. Um, as it portrays for this, uh, or as far as male, female, I think uh, it's interesting uh, when you're baptized, you're still baptized usually on the same gendered spirit, but that is not necessarily always the case. And it has nothing to do with sexual orientation, which is quite interesting. Um, there's been, I've been witness to and have done readings myself where the Eshu and Pomajira in the reading will heavily hint that the person just doesn't know that they are, they identify as trans, but they haven't said it out loud yet. It's probably the best way to say it. And that has happened many times. So it's like, well, if I were to, to baptize you now, I would or do it on your Eshu, but I have a feeling that you should be open to being doing it on your Pomajira's point in the future type of thing. And that's where you, you try and see what this conversation can be. Um, but again, everybody has their own agency. And some people will make their choices as to where it goes. And I think everything with those with these spirits is an individualized uh, conversation that has to happen about what's the way to empower this person, the, the strongest, the most rooted in who they are, as well as who the land that we're on when we do the initiation, which includes its spirits that are around there. Um, so, yeah. You kind of answered the question, but kind of went. Mm -hmm. Oh, no. Oh, yeah, that 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 
I felt like that not only answered the question, that actually added so much more context to it. You mentioned something earlier that I thought was really, really interesting. You mentioned about the um, issue synchronization or like the correspondence of connecting the demons with the Grimorium Verum. And I think that's a really interesting thing because I, I haven't heard about that before. And you mentioned something about, uh, is it Illusio Fontanelle? Is it Fontanelli or Fontanelle? Yep. Fontanelle. Well, Fontanelle. in English, we say Fontanelle, yeah. Fontanelle, okay, great. Can you talk about Fontanelle's impact on Kimbanda and how his writing solidified and canonized Kimbanda? Yeah, I think, again, the, it doesn't necessarily mean a book is good, but the first book that comes out on a subject really changes things. And you yes. get a few writers around that time, uh, Fontanelle being heavily there to put the demons with it. And then everybody started saying, well, we have to put that in ours or it's not legitimate because uh, it became it kind of took off from there. So you see this demon syncretization there in Betancourt, in um, Braga, in the other predominant writers of the 50s and 60s that were happening. And these are sold like in candle stores and they're, they're the cheapest quality paper in that type of paperback that is like cardstock with a little fold over on the edge where three quarters of the book is the same history of the spirits and Catholic prayers at the end with about 15 pages of something in the middle that are about the spirit and workings, but really they just kind of change the name of the who's the who the working belongs to. And they have maybe a page and a half of information about the spirit, but they're public, they're they're cranking them out. They're cranking them out so that you'll buy them at 10 cents or whatever it is. So you want to work it. And what happens there is you have this grandioseness of like you there are these beautiful line drawings of seeing like seven bottles of champagne, seven bottles of cachaça, seven meters of black ribbon, seven meters of red ribbon around seven uh, yards of red cloth, seven yards of black cloth cut into squares with seven pieces of chalk and seven boxes of matches with seven boxes, seven matches sticking out of each box and seven little candles, seven big candles and seven roosters slaughtered there in the middle of the crossroads. Now, that is a common offering in those books. And the thing is, the reality with these spirits, a lot of it is like you could just go to the crossroads and, and, and a simple act of actually calling it. If it's a spirit, that you know, you can call, it will take a lot less. But part of the idea was that, well, if it's not, and the spirit doesn't know, you're going to have to pay a lot more. So I understand the grandioseness of those offerings. But what you're creating is a culture of um, a spectacle that's going and it's like, look what these horrible magicians are doing. And if you really want results, this is what you've got to do. So it's an interesting side there because the trends happen just like they do now, where for a few years, it's this overemphasis on syncretization with demons and how we're just like those Europeans to by the time you get to the late 60s and early 70s, where what's called the re-Africanization happens, where they try and throw out all European influence as a pop. Not everybody did. I'm just saying that was the trend of like, no, 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 you still do it that way. You still think that that's a European spirit. No, of course not. So Maria Pagia becomes this idea that she is solely African and a perfect example of syncretism there is as things go in the 90s, you had a person do their doctorate on Maria Pagia's influence in the witch trials in Spain and documented in the 1500s 1600s in the Auto de Fe of Maria Pagia being called upon as the wife of the devil. And then you understand the historical figure as the 11th or 12th century woman who was the mistress of Pedro the Cruel. And there's these things that go and that influences that. And by the year, by the early 2000s, you get Maria Pagia coming down into Hato saying, we are no longer under the shackles of Yorisha. We exist as Kimbanda separate from them. So you get the formation and identification and some houses were already thinking this of Kimbanda de Jais houses, this way of mentality of Kimbanda of the root, like the root Kimbanda without this other stuff. All is to say that creation of canon happens constantly as it goes. And Fontenelle is both revered and despised. And a lot of people have this romanticization with that. Hmm. It's kind of like... Um, 
like anything, like we may think McDonald's is not the most amazing food, but there's still sometimes where you smell it and you're like, oh yeah, that's great. That's fries. Mm, <laughs> yeah, I could go now to those fries. That, that romanticization happens with everything. So if you saw this like, oh, that devil in the botanic or that devil in the candle store, because they call them candle stores there, mm. uh, that had red candles, you're like, I kind of want that little devil. Even if your house doesn't syncretize with that devil, you're like, but I like the devil. He's is so this what we're exposed to does create our 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 likes and joys. It's like God give me some seventies uh, Wicca with the long hair and the flowing robes and the ring with like obsidian that's like this big. Mm-hmm. It's sexy as fuck. It is, um, yeah. And Ray, like Cabot. Yeah, it's just like oh, uh, it's like what we want to be. It's that it's that meme of like what we think we are, what we're actually doing, what others see us <laughs> as. It's all there, and Kimunda is no different. So Fontanelle. Yeah. Can you inform our listeners real quick about who you said Maria 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 Padilla? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I know who she is, of course. <laughs> yeah, could you so... inform our listeners? <laughs> Maria Padilla is a, a quintessential Pombajira in, in, okay. in Banda and Kimbanda. So she is one of the most popular spirits, but she is also therefore one of the most legion. She comes in every flavor. Okay. Um, now she is a syncretism or in idea, not necessarily a, a, acutely with the fact or named for that in Spain, there was a, a Romeo and Juliet story between the King, Pedro the Cruel, that when he was a teenager, he was he was flirting with and, and having relations with a young noble woman named Maria Padilla. Um, and she and he were supposedly secretly married, but because he's the King, he has to be openly married to someone else for political reasons. So they, they it's known that there's this affair going on and she's not doing anything notably bad in her lifetime. She, she founded some nunneries. She used her nobility. Well, um, she dies at 27, um, most likely from the plague. She's a member of the 27 club and Pedro goes into such, he's the King of Seville, by the way, like he's a big deal. Um, so uh, the, he has his current marriage to his wife annulled because he says, I actually married Maria Padilla when we were teenagers. And so she goes from being an adulterous mistress who's in hell to suddenly named the queen posthumously. And the local lore was that in order for her to go from hell to heaven, because divine right of kings, right? She's in in heaven is she must've married the devil. So the lore in the, by the witch trials in the 15, 1600s, the auto, the phase that were happening in Spain, she was notably called upon by Barabbas, by Satanas, by the wife of Lucifer himself, the Lady Maria Pagia, and all her legions. Now, to say all her legions is also because Pandia in Spanish, not just Padilla is her name, but Pandia is gang. So Mary of the gangs. Mary and her groupies. So she gets this double layer. But because that's true in Portuguese too, Maria Pagia also just becomes this name of like the woman that comes with a lot of support. No, the woman and Pombajira is always the woman of seven husbands, right? So some of that's because there's she literally has devils assigned to her. Not all Pombajiras are expressing their relationship with seven husbands, but Pombajira herself is a lady of seven husbands, as is Maria Padilla very heavily. So in Brazil, Maria Padilla becomes this memory of the ambitious woman, the woman that would dare rise above her station, the woman mm-hmm. that goes after what she wants, whether it's a man or a job or a kingdom. And so Maria Padilla gets all these other stories that she was also, oh, She's an initiate of Candomblé. She was made to Shango and uh, she uh, got offended and didn't want to do something for Shango. And she was she was killed for this, but then her spirit is still very powerful and she knows all the magics. And there's always these backstories that happen. Oh, she was made to Oshun and this Tehiro over there in that city. And that person's Maria Padilla has that backstory. But either way, Maria Padilla becomes this 
archetype of ambition. Mm-hmm. And so if a bombajira comes forth and is like, my main thing is ambition, she might identify as a Maria Padilla. It doesn't mean she's the historical Maria Padilla. It doesn't mean she's the Candomblé priest that died over there. It just means that whatever spirit is attached to that conglomerate, because oftentimes they're constellations. So it's um, with a cachiso, we might say that someone, uh, uh, these types of spirits, someone died near a tree um, and got eaten by a snake that was then eaten by a, a jaguar who lived in the tree that again shot by a hunter who then also died and lightning struck and all those things together make up the spirit. All of those things. And so it might speak with the voice of a snake who speaks with the voice of a human hunter. And that type of thing is why these spirits are not just fully human. Uh, they're something other. They're powerful dead. They're witchy dead. Mm. Uh, the mighty dead, if we want to go there. And so that's why there's a difference between ancestors, Bakulu or Egum, and then going up one level to these witchy dead that are there. that are also usually unnamed in the past. And we give them names of these stereotypical spirits. So if you're, you know... If you're a spirit that's snarling in the corner in bitterness, you might be that, that's really obsessed with like exacting oaths and very good at like grinding things and little magical things. It might be a capa preta, a black cape, eshu. And eventually he might reveal that he has a specific name and a specific sigil that goes with it. But we call him for the first few years of the development through the Ponto Hiscado, capa preta, and the Ponto Contado, capa preta. He takes the scene capa preta likes. Same thing with Maria Padilla. Maria Padilla is going to love dressing very extravagantly. She's going to hold her her champagne flute, you know, this is lemon juice, but like, it's going to be like, you know, champagne there and everything's like this and the cigarettes here, she might have a cigarette holder. Now the difference is, is Maria Padilla in, in, in my understanding, she's still the uncrowned queen, right? So that ambition is there. She wasn't crowned in her lifetime. She was crowned mm-hmm. in hell. So Maria Padilla is a patron of the arts. She's the one that's like, look at me, everybody, when I walk into a room. Now the queen Pombajiras, like kind of the Sechon Cruceliadas, kind of the Sechon Cruceros, um, they command from afar. They come down and like, you, what are you doing? Go do there, go over there. So there's a different in tone. Whereas Maria Padilla is still very sociable. She'll, she'll come up and schmooze with you. She's not necessarily going to yell at you from a distance. And then there's the commoner Pombajiras, the Marias, which is, she has Maria as well, but some Pombajiras are named Maria. Some messages are named Joe, you know, Jose, Se, or, or Jean, John. So these, these, are, these are everyday spirits that are more happy to be like, what is it that you need? Great, I'll go do it. I'll come back. Whereas if some, and some people you can tell, you see them like, oh, you probably have a queen on you. It's a little bit, we can sniff the queen. Um, and so I'll borrow that kind of queering of things. If like someone comes in for everything, like there's a queen in the room. You can tell this person is a little, thinks highly of themselves and probably rightly so, but that's what it is. So Maria Padilla is a quintessential one in that way. Ambition, um, uh, desire, seduction and just a whole bunch of fun magic because she brings she starts the party i think that we were we were talking a little bit about fontanelle and i i I, i'm like the importance question mark i say with trepidation i have not read the book because i can't find an english translation but i've translated parts of it with good old uh google translate which i do find very helpful. Most of the time, it's pretty succinct. Sometimes I have to go back and forth. Uh, with his text, uh, there is that solidification. It's actually not that big of a book, and not as many spirits as I would thought had been in there. Yeah. Um, but do you find that in a tradition where the emphasis is direct spirit communication with the spirit? And with Tata or Yaya, which are the teachers of Kimbanda or the, the priests of Kimbanda, um, do you find that books are antithetical to it? And also, uh-huh. how does that feel 
how does that play into the fact that like right now we're witnessing a huge uh, maybe not a huge but like maybe the start of a lot of more publications in english which is going to it's doing something like i i, I, and I don't want to speak too much on that but it is doing something i'm noticing it's doing something so how do you feel about that Uh, different every day. <laughs> I, I think like with Fontenelle, sure, there's an impact there that goes and you saw, um, uh, Friswold heavily references Fontenelle and kind of brings it back to this kind of, uh, landscape there. I think, um, each, as we progress and we see books that are coming out, because a lot of the Kimana books for years were all the same. And you see these ones, like, if we're going to talk about Fontenelle, it's also worth talking about, like, um, Baba Osvaldo Omobatala, who was the one, the first time we see the kingdoms in print. And that's, like, that's a big thing, the Seven Kingdoms of Eshu, which a lot of people adopted right away, like, oh, this was a bit of lore I didn't know that I had. Um, because it's, again, <laughs> it's, you got to keep up. Oh, well, this makes sense. Let's do it this way. So, you know, Fontenelle is proposing that rather than be under the laws, the seven rays of Umbanda and the Orishas that govern those seven colored rays, that suddenly we're all under the Grimoirium Verum trilogy of Lucifer, Ashtaroth, and Beelzebub. And that those are syncretizes, Eshu Lucifer, Eshu Mor, Eshu Heda Sechem Kusilianas. And that there's an infernal trinity in guiding there that is also syncretized within that Ponto of the Mayoral of being kind of a, a, a Luciferian Michael hybrid that also exists in with in many ways influenced by the concepts of Eshu and Ogun from Candomblé uh, across the board, whether it's whether it's Momojila and Kosi or Legba and, and Gu or uh, Eshu and Ogun. But that creation of canon keeps happening over and over. And that's, I think it's what inspires new books, right? Where people are like, well, we got to write this part because this wasn't said correctly. And that'll trend for a while. And then somebody else would do it. There were a couple of books that were out, um, Kimana, the Red and Black Flame, um, uh, I think Danilo's book. There's 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 a few others that are out there in English, uh, sometimes translated very quickly and sometimes not always as accurately accurately they, as they should be. Fun fact about translation: if you're looking at Pontos um, Cantados on YouTube, if you put all capitals into Google Translate, it translates differently than if you use a mixture of upper and lower case. Sometimes dramatically differently, um, and that's one of its drawbacks. But Google uh, Translate has gotten immum immaculately better. Immaculately, that's a weird, yes, Mary, the Virgin Mary came in. Um, <laughs> it's just gotten much better, uh, uh, exponentially better over the years because people are correcting it. And that's part of what it is. Um, also, the one, interestingly, right now, as of right now, the, the Google that allows you to turn your phone into a translator where you scan over the text and it translates is more accurate than the one that you type into, um, interestingly. And I don't know why. That wasn't the case a month ago, but right now, as of this, as of this filming, that's what's going on. So it changes all the time. I, where do I go with that? Well, it's hard when you're trying to like um, teach, right? And like the new information comes out and I'm reminded of like cross-culturally the the joke used to be in the Lukumi community because I, I, I grew up around Lukumi, but it's still that you come into it in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was still a lot of the old school stuff because we hadn't hit peak internet yet. So like you weren't allowed to, like if my godmother is a, if, uh, Austin, you know about her, but my godmother is, I mean, she was a Black Panther. She was a founding member of the Young Lords here in New York. She is like democratization of knowledge, give everybody everything, let them figure it out and like help the community. Um, so I had a godparent who was very willing to let me read, but we just didn't talk about it with elders. Like, because if you said, oh, Palino, in the book, they say like this, the elders would have said, then the book can crown you. Get out. 
um, because like a lot of the information was wrong. You're like, and that's part of, and that's a whole other obsession of mine is the transmission of knowledge in the West is people say they're self-taught. You have a bookshelf. You're not self-taught. You're having a one-sided conversation with a bunch of people that can't correct you when you misinterpret their ideas. And so it's, it's, it's a difficult thing, which I think is that balance of a traditional learning for me. I am built for uh, apprenticeship. Like that's just how I learn. I like seeing how things were done. I'm sure I could read a, a book on brain surgery and study it really well, but I would still like to go through my residency. And I think that there's something to that. I think we can empower agency and uh, take out the old models that exist in many of the traditional systems that make you a slave to the temple or uh, you know, uh, uh, paying exorbitant amounts of money to the initiator or to the temple to get things done. Because you can talk about what the transparency of costs are. You can talk about well, this is what's needed. And if you're not trying to scam people, then you're an ethical priest. Like, it'll be fine. But that's its own challenge because those models aren't necessarily easy to find in any of our communities, in any tradition. It's very difficult. Um, I think books are amazing. I think they should all be burned. And we should you know, eat the, eat the ashes and see what <laughs> comes out. Um, most of my friends... And, and mentors that are authors on various traditions will also admit their books should be burned as well. But like you, the only way it's like, it's, you have to repair the car while it's driving on the highway type of thing. And um, sometimes that means uh, sucking it up and writing a book. And sometimes that means uh, you're a brand new practitioner and you want to draw clients and, and people. And so you're going to write a book and that's going to get your name out there. You don't make money on the book. You make money on what the book does, which is bring awareness to you and your cause. And so there are some people that write because they're obsessed with correcting the knowledge that's out there. There are some people that are writing because they've had creative impulses as to what the knowledge could be. And there are some people that write because they want what the benefits of having written something are. Um, and it could be like an equal EQ thing. And like, you're like 80% this one and 20% this one and like 5% there, but they're all there in some form. It, but, um, you know, is, is a podcast about exploring new ideas is it about getting some type of dopamine fix of like, oh, I saw my face and I looked cute on the podcast. And like, you know, so it's like, oh, I heard you talking. I really like what you talk about. And like, you know, you get a little bit of, they're all there. Um, they're all different demons vying for primary possession. Um, but you, you still get to be the consciousness in charge. So in that roundabout way, I think books are great. Um, I'm writing 20 of them um, and, and failing at all of them. Um, but I also, I think that if something is about conversation, that's really the way to go. So if you can have a dialogue and talk about things, and if the book is not just the starting, the book is the start of of, of a conversation, right? Um, and it's uh, there's a Rabelais quote that I use that I love, um, which is tongue in cheek, but is still important. Is that I hate books. They teach us to talk about something we have no idea about, um, and it, it's a it's a lovely as a quote in a book that says that. Um, <laughs> Uh, and so it's not like a call to be Luddite or anything, but it's to understand the limitations of the printed word. And especially in an age where we're living so much in our head and our permutations in this uh, digital environment where there's so many things of information going in there. Grounding something in reality is like the my my Ojibona and Lukumi, uh, who's passed, but his famous thing, like, don't trust a Santero that doesn't know how to mop because it means you've never been at a ritual. Um, and, you know, it. The, or the Congolese proverb of community is like honey. It's oh so sweet and oh so sticky. And like that part of it of like, I was bemusing with a friend the other day. Um, uh, 
the discussion of like pre-internet and I'm not just trying to say, oh, the, it, it's changed. We got to deal with it. The internet is a wonderful tool. So we might as well, hopefully we're harnessing it towards the better. Um, so it's not saying I wish we could return. Like, like it's more that there's a foundational. And it's one of the main differences in generational thought, right? That if you grew up with it, you're, you think differently than people who didn't. But in the 90s, um, when some of you were born or not born and some of us were, you know, teenagers, um, if you found an online chat and there was a open coven meeting for something, or you found a new age store, let's put it back in the eighties or seventies. And you, you didn't even go in the first time. You're like hanging out on the street outside of it. Like, Oh my God, can I even go in here? Like what's going on? And you go in a few times. And after a few visits, which might've taken place over the course of six months or a couple years, you might notice that they, they, they come up to you. Like, I've noticed you here a few times. Would you be interested in coming to an open Sabbath or something like that? And you're like, Oh my God. Yeah. I'm going to go to the witch's Sabbath next month. That's amazing. And you go back to a few of them. And after a few of them, they ask you like, would you be interested in dedicating and be studying with us because we have an open circle and you do that. And like, you have the personality conflicts but you resolve them because this is the only fucking group you've ever heard of in your entire life that's actually doing it in person because you're not in england where you think there's witches like everywhere and like this whole thing happens so you end up having to like do personal like maintenance of relationships shutting your mouth and learning to be like okay i should shut up here but when there's so much to choose from you can jump between things and be like well fuck this group and fuck this teacher and fuck everything doesn't work if it's the if that's the sustenance of what you have it's kind of like um, family for better or worse. Some people are born into horrible families and they should leave and should burn it all to the ground. And some people are born into, most people are born into like a little bit of everything, right? And it's like, uh, you take what you can, you go. It doesn't mean you have to be an asshole. It doesn't mean you you shouldn't be an asshole. That's up for you to decide. Uh, put the morality on each person. But similarly with these traditions, I think that there's a lot of um, uh, emphasis on what can I gain out of a community as opposed to how do I help create the community with this community that I want to be a part of? And community is something that is created, not joined. And that is a hard thing for a lot of us coming into from the Western model, which is like this idea that there's this great white brotherhood and lodge system that you're going to initiate into, and they're going to give you all the secrets, and it's going to be amazing. Um, and you're just going to, they're going to recognize your pure brilliance, and you are the Kwisatz Sahadarak, and you're going to change time and space, and you're just going to be the best little witch that ever witched. Or... Um, you know, you take a, a chill pill and, and you some humble pie and like sit there and figure out how to make it what you want. Um, the the temple systems, the Tejedo systems, the lodge systems, none of them are easy. And as much as that depends upon the leader, the people that they choose to be around them, the resources of that that went into it to begin with, um, and your own ability to be like, what can I, how do I help? How do I change things? How do I, how do I co-create the world that I want? Um, diatribe and tangent but still if if you know you know that's that's part of our systems it's there you know gotta deal there, with it there was something you said and i literally had to mute myself so i could like say it out loud as i was typing it because i had to say it over and over and again to remember and you said have uh reading a book is like having a one converse one-sided conversation with someone who can't correct you when you misinterpret them and i think that that is Oh, it was so like I was I texted it to myself because it was so juicy and I knew I needed to have that because that is something that I think happens so often, not only in books, but mm -hmm. on like online in online spaces, yeah, Twitter, threads, Instagram, social media. I will make a statement that I think that I believe is is clear about my intent. I like oranges. By the way, I don't like oranges, just so just so you know. But like if I were to say, like, I like oranges, I guarantee you within 24 hours, someone will be on there saying, Why do you hate bananas? Yeah. 
And it's it's very much like it's one of those stupid things that I'm like, are you stupid? Like I have to imagine like this is a joke, right? But people will be in absolutely all seriousness. They almost look for things to pick at. And when we when it goes to a book, some books are are I mean, some of the books, especially in like modern witchcraft era, right? Some of these are one year old, five year old, fifty years old, sixty years old. But it's really most of them are still under a century year old and some of them even under like 70, 60 years old. So these are snapshots in time. And some of these authors are dead. Some of them are alive, but they're never going to talk to you. And the way in which, not you specifically, but you know what I mean. Yeah, They're never going to talk to me, but like (laughs) never going to talk to you. But it's one of those weird things where I do think that that happens constantly in books. Um, You see someone write a book based off of their interpretation of another book. And, and it's so, I love that you also mentioned like the first person to talk about a subject or publish a book on a subject creates the canon on that subject and then someone else either has to follow along and then include that canon and how they expand upon it and their next publication or challenge it and more often than not because we as a society want validation we're going to include it in the canon so we can move on and so that actually brings us to our next question which i think is really really timely kimbanda has canon and yet there are many Kimbanda lineages. So can you tell us a little bit more about the Kimbanda changes from lineage to lineage, person to person and place to place? Yeah, I think I think that's also one of the important things in discussing like as books in Kimbanda, about Kimbanda are, are translated or written in English to mm-hmm. understand that there are, there are many Kimbandas. And um, my initiator was very fond of saying there are as many Kimandas as there are Kimandados or as there are Eshus because our personal spirits guide how we would rule a temple, how we would run a temple, how we would make changes. And they're the ones that literally approve the changes that are made. And I would say that Kimanda has less of an emphasis until recently upon like, where did you come from? Because it was a solely Brazilian thing and not everybody wanted to admit to doing all the Kimbanda, but now it's more popular and more fun. So they're like, well, where did you learn this and where did you learn this from? Um, Kimbanda runs a spectrum. So there are some Kimbandas that are more still attached to Umbanda, and that's wonderful. There's there again, Umbanda has Kimbanda. It does. It has a form of it. And it has what is originally their terminology of saying that's Kimbanda. And then there are the people that were doing something that would be called whatever they're calling it, and be like, oh, well, I, I guess I do Kimbanda. And they were labeled that from outside, and that's fine. So there's that full spectrum of everything from the very spiritist, um, and I, by that, I mean codified, Kardecian-based, um, and eventually Umbandized spiritism to the very, very African way of working with things. And perhaps a little bit of room to say that there's indigenous ways of working with things, but I don't have personal knowledge of those per se. Um, there is indigenous influence, but I wouldn't say that I know of a Kimbanda temple that is seated in how indigenous people work with spirits. Um, I do know temples that are have broken off from or were originally um, allied to Candomblé Angola, Candomblé Bantu. I even know one Kimbanda temple that works heavily through a Jeji lens, meaning more like Vodou and how they work with spirits, um, the Brazilian form of Vodou. Um, a lot of it was attached onto uh, Candomblé Nago in its various forms, the different nations of the Yoruba people that came there to Brazil. The other side of it is that like in, in Bahia, um, in the very conservative temples, Bahia is was one of the last places settled. So the Yoruba temples that are there tend to be speaking more Yoruba, have more things, um, what they would say considered pure, but that's a that's a whole other discussion, right? But like more in line with what was happening across the waters. Um, 
And so they judge what was the Kundalini being done in Rio and Sao Paulo as being like, this is not correct, constantly. And Rio de Janeiro was heavily the center of the Angola people. And so they were there longer and things are like, whatever, we don't have our original words anymore. We're gonna just gonna incorporate and keep things going. It was very pragmatic. Um, and Sao Paulo comes up later. But these different ways of thinking in Bahia, you can be in a Kundalini temple of Yoruba uh, descent. And if you get possessed by a Pombajira, they're going to tell you, go over to there, get it resolved, seat it. This is your personal practice, but we don't do that in this temple. So they weren't they weren't discouraging of you developing your spiritual court, but it wasn't a communal practice of like they were worrying and worshiping Orisha and they taught Orisha in that temple. And a lot of the Bahia temples are very strict in that way. So you get people that are like, well, I'm not a Kimandero, but they've been working Kimanda for 50 years because they have a spirit in a closet somewhere or buried under a tree that they go and they offer a goat to. And that's how things get protected and done. Um, oh, the wind is loud today. Um, then you have people that are the Umbandaized where they kind of followed in the Fontenelle footsteps and you'll see very satanic Umbanda where suddenly it's doing a lot of black masses and this invokes Eshu and Bombajira and all these other things. And it's like, this feels a little bit like you, you changed everything that was white and Umbanda to black and you get different forms of that. There are things like um, uh, the different lineages, Kimbanda Nago, Kimbanda Museramin, Kimbanda Luciferiana, Kimbanda Tradicional, Kimbanda de Oro, Kimbanda that's with Umbanda, Kimbanda de Angola, which is the lineage I was brought into, Kimbanda Congo. Um, these are there's this spectrum of what is preserving and incorporating the African side, usually from the Bantu and Angola, and yes, some from the Yoruba, um, or what is incorporating uh, Goisha, Kimbanda Shamba. Um, that would incorporate a European attitude of Goisha about these things. Um, each temple head determines where that's going to go. And that could be that the Eshu themselves is heavily bent towards like a ceremonial magic way of thinking of like, it likes the circles, it likes the correspondences, it likes to list things off in that way. And that is in harmony with how the person works. So they're going to emphasize more of that. For me personally, I've always liked the, I lucked out that the lineage I joined was Kimbanda de Angola, but I always liked the Angola Bantu heritage of Kimbanda um, because as an Orisha priest, my Yoruba is there. I didn't want to have the suddenly I'm adding on these other things onto the Yoruba. Now, you know, to follow the expression, the dog has four legs, but only walks one way. It's still, I have to figure out how to work with them all in my head, but I keep my, my Bantu Angola separate from my Orisha. And, se and separate from my witchcraft, but not because my witchcraft is going to incorporate everything that I have. But there's still, how do you make sure things are rightly given their, their space in those things? So Kimbanda could be very um, spiritist. Flowers and um, we seat with little carnelian pebbles inside little, and we put some herbal washes on there and perfumes. And if the spirit comes, it comes. And if not, it's a symbolic token put by the front door to kind of guard the space. To, and you get people that say there's no use of dirts or human remains or um, or that you don't cut the body. And it's like, and then you talk to the people who are in Kondomlea, you're like every African tradition in Brazil cuts the body. Body medicine is a huge part of what we do. And so it would be weird if we didn't cut the body. Yet there are Kimandas out there that will say, we don't cut the body. We don't think, we don't believe in human bones because that means the dirty spirits are going to come. And it's like, there's human bones in you. Dirty spirits are coming around you anyway. But um, the technology, the Congo have always used human bones and things. That's just, that becomes anti-Congo or, or the fact that the Yoruba were used as house slaves. Um, so there's this tension between the Congo as being the people, the hard workers in the field cutting sugarcane and the Yoruba being allowed in the house 
because they're more civilized and therefore the proximity to whiteness and everything that goes in with that, that there's a battle there like, well, the Congo spirits are bad and the Yoruba spirits are good. And you're like, okay, sure. Um, or they, people's spiritualities and, and cosmologies are what they are. And the lineages reflect all of those things. But I would also say that Kimbanda is really good at betraying its own lineages. And there's people that were born into one lineage that then um, either read a book and change parts of what they're doing or train or their issue says, now do something like this. And what they have keeps working. Um, and they transmit that. And it goes from there. I think what's <clears throat> another layer on top of that is what's the responsibility of those of us that come from the outside and what are we changing and how are we changing? Because if you don't know how you're changing anything you've received, you're not looking closely enough. Everything will be changed by the people that are transmitting. And you can try and tell yourself, okay, well, I'm trying to do what my mentors did, but are you doing it in the same language? Are you doing it with the same plants? Are you doing it in the same locale? I'm up here where it is 20 to 30 degrees today. If I want to go talk to my spirits, they're in the back, on the back part of the property. It's going to be a while to get me warm, let alone them warm. And that's a different different way. The plants are different here. I've got to be able to work with the plants that are growing out of this soil, as well as know all of the traditional Brazilian ones. So it's it's this relationship that has to keep happening. So I think the, the different lineages are part and parcel of, is it an individual that's tied to a temple that's still practicing what that is? Or is it a temple itself? It's like, I'm on this land, I've got to deal with what's here, which is a very Congolese attitude. Is it... Um, we're very Umbandized and we don't believe in this like cutting of people's bodies or seeding things with dirt and all these other things. We like quarchinias with gemstones and things like that. Sure, it could be very new agey in that way. And again, somebody writes a book and talks about one way and suddenly everybody's like, well, I guess uh, I do that or I don't do that. You either have to go towards it or away from it. Every single thing that's pointed out. And so the lineages reaffirm themselves constantly. There's definitely now you see the posturing and see like, oh, Kimbanda has never used human bones. You're like, that's just not historically true. Or Kimbanda has uh, always done this. Kimbanda has always done... Kimbanda itself is a term is... The way we think of it is 100, 120 years old at most. But it was a word before that that had a specific meaning. And these practices predate that creation. However, you know, you're, if you're selling pies, you're going to do your best job to think that, you know, your your apple pie is the best in town. It's the best so, pie in London. Absolutely. Um, and it's always meat pie. Always meat pie is the best pie. Um, so yeah, I think the lineage, the lineages are great and important. They are less um, defined. They are becoming defined now. Um, they used to be something that's just, what do you call the Kimbanda you do? Like, what is it described as? So for me, Kimbanda d'Angola, our Kimbanda comes from Angola cosmology. It comes from uh, Kondomble Angola. That was that the way it was thinking about things. So there's a lot more use of Kimbundu and the Kikongo languages. There's an understanding of how this, the times of day and the suns and the those in Kisi that govern things are there. I also study Kimbanda Congo, um, which is a Bantu version, which is very similar, but is is still slightly different than Kimbanda Jangola. Um, it has fundamental changes in how it thinks about things, which is also very different from Kimbanda Luciferiana or Kimbanda Nago, which still relies on Ogun to do a lot of the things of controlling things in Kimbanda Nago. Nago is the word for the Yoruba stuff. So there's a lot of Yoruba influence there. Kimbanda at this point has influence from all of it. Just like you said, it's a, it's a clash of cultures trying to see what rises to the top in utility. I think that like everything in Brazil, it has that Congo root there. Um, but if it doesn't for other people and they want to see like this guy who doesn't know what he's fucking talking about, maybe in their Kimanda, I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but that's not who I owe my allegiance to. Um, so is it is it simply like, well, my gods are or my spirits or my devils are better than yours? 
whatever. But if you don't like what I do, then go somewhere else. That's fine. There's plenty of options and there's increasing options in the States. Um, and that's good. And for me, um, I think it's better to be close to the temple, physically close to the temple, if you can be. And so start off local and see if there's any people practicing Kimbanda around you um, that can be referred to. I know more people in Brazil than I do in the States. I know of people in the States, um, but I know more people in Sao Paulo and Rio and, and Bahia that are practicing Kimbanda and that I'm friends with in various temples there. Um, my closest friends are in Sao Paulo. Um, and and that's that's where I, I still go for for inspiration and, and uh, fun, I guess, learning, learning, not from a book. With that being said, for our listeners, it, it's it's uh, been stated already, but Kimbanda is initiatory. And I'm curious if you can tell us where can people find you? Uh, if they're interested in it, how, how can people get into contact with you or others uh, for consulta to find their personal uh, or their, their, their spirit courts and things like that? Mm-hmm. Um, I always say if people want to know how to find me, just don't. That's better. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, uh, I am, I'm, I'm around. Like you can, you can find me uh, email wise, um, Tata Apokan, T A T A dot A P O K A N at Gmail is the one that's related to the Kimbanda stuff. There will be a website for the temple upcoming. I'm just trying to write some articles in English and Portuguese for it. Um, that was a command last year that I got to do that this year. So. Um, that will be an easier way, but you can write me, contact me that way. Uh, if you're interested in reading or just talking more, happy to do that. If you already have a game under practice, but you're on your own and want advice, that's something that we do a lot is how to help people, um, kind of refine and go forward in that way. Um, you know, uh, initiation is not something you can just ask and write for. You have to, you have to get a reading. The temple spirits have to say that, yes, this is appropriate and that this is the right time. Um, sometimes initiation is, is, is important, but not necessarily in this temple, um, which can happen, and that's true. I I do know of people in the states, and I've sent people to a few local temples. You know, I don't know what other people practice in the states because I haven't done that like tour of like, well, what do you do in your temples? And and that's not necessarily something that's very Brazilian to do either. Um, to be like, oh, I just uh, let me come in your temple and see what you do is kind of like, let me go see how you make love. Let me go see how you you know cook your granny's apple pie. I don't. These metaphors are terrible. Um, the there are one was good. Yeah. The 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 temples in Brazil that I know, I know a lot of them. And it doesn't mean that you're going to get along with the people there. It doesn't mean that you're going to have the funds to, you know, for the 800 to $2,000 plane ticket, you know, once or twice a year, like we do learn in person. So again, local is great. I know people um, in various places, um, but I do know that showing up at the temple is a huge part of learning um, and uh, is is an emphasis for me with, with my godchildren. The more that show up more, um, godchildren is an English term. You should just call them children, but that sounds weird when you're not in Portuguese, you're like my children, um, it, it creeps me out. Um, but, uh, or Fio de Santo, the, the saintly children. Um, uh, probably like Satan, children of the devil is probably better. Um, but uh, so some of us can be found, sure. You know, there's 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 people out there that are that are offering trips to Brazil and you get initiated and come back. For me, it's like, go local if you can um, and see if they have, you know, who are they talking to? Where, what is their pattern? Like who are their initiators in the States, especially if they're Brazilians and there's plenty of amazing Umbanda houses that have a really strong Kimbanda practice and they have open drummings and stuff. So you don't have to commit to anything. You're just going. And there's, there's ones in New York and in New Jersey. Um, I know in the Carolinas, there's a prominent Umbanda practice. Um, Florida for sure. Miami has definitely got Umbanda and now more and more Kimbanda. Some of it's scam. Um, because it's a way to make money because it's getting more popular. And some of it's really legit. 
hard to know which one's which, so take your time. Um, as as you know, Austin, as you know from just mutual people, like I'm not fast with allowing people to like oh, I don't I don't owe you anything. Like, come visit a few times, let's chat, let's talk about it. But I I do readings all the time and do a lot of workings, and that's pretty much where my busy time is with Kimbanda. So, um, readings can be done at a distance. They can also be done in person. In person is pretty pretty fun, I think. Um, but I also need to make sure that you're not you know an insane person coming onto my property. Um, so yeah. that's its own. That's its own benefit when you are heading a temple, right? Um, <laughs> who is this coming in my driveway? Do you want me to at the coffee house and blindfold you and bring you to the property? Or... This is uh, all, all completely new to me. And it felt like, um, you know, it's so interesting because I feel like we as not just practitioners, but as human beings, we have our own perspective of life where we live, right? And then we are lucky enough, if we are privileged enough to travel, we see how other cultures and other people live around the world. Mm -hmm. So I just feel like the more we have the opportunity to listen to people tell us and inform us about their cultures, the more not only we are cultured, we are more experienced in what the world has to offer out there. And I think so many of us get so stuck up in our bubbles and what's right and what's wrong, and we don't always have the opportunity to hear those perspectives, to see them and to experience them. So um, I'm grateful. I'm grateful to hear everything you've had to offer because um, I know your time is valuable and it means a lot to have you on our show. Well, thank you. It's a lot. It's I'm, I'm a fan and it's lovely to, to chat with you about it. I mean, I'll also put it out there that I, like as I owe a lot to Kimbanda. I adore Kimbanda in, in all of its forms. I'm especially thankful to the elders that I've had and continue, the ones I continue to train with and to my spirits. I'm also not Brazilian by birth. I'm also not the sole representative of Kimbanda and would never claim to be. And there are other people that are going to disagree with most, if not all, of what I said, um, except that, you know, Eshu and are the, the heart of Kimbanda. And so, like, I, I don't, I'm not claiming to be an expert in other people's Kimbanda. I will say I've been around for a while, um, have made many mistakes and tried to, to do a lot of good things, too. Um, but uh, I adore Kimbanda. I am grateful that the system uh at this point welcomes outsiders and and uh can go in that way it is it is, for some uh it's a family tradition and they would never allow someone who's not of their family into it and that you can study all the magic you want and you can be a powerful magician and they'll recognize you but you're not a king on native and so like that that type of thing is there too and i respect that opinion and those perspectives so um i'm, I'm proud at this point i can say like i understand and proud to contribute to and to continue to learn Kimbanda culture and traditions, um, but also to understand that I still am an outsider and owe my perspective and um, successes to the communities that I am a part of and to um, a, a great support of friends and priests still to this day who continue to inspire me and are there for me when I have questions. Um, and, uh, you know, we're always students, always, or there's no point to what we're doing. And uh, so, yeah, so it's as equally important. Thank you for for providing the space for this and for other people to come in and chat and talk um, because conversation is a lot better than sitting there thinking you know your shit. Um, the, I, I'm a member of a, like a esoteric theater group and one of our maxims is that the group is a mirror and every conversation, every live performance is an opportunity to have that mirror and that reflection put back at you. So it exposes your weaknesses, your strengths, and everything like that. And that's all fuel for growth. So I think Kimbanda is such a mirror. I think our spirits can be that group. I think our communities can be that group, sticky and honey and sweet as it is, as well as chatting and talking. So thanks for allowing uh, a little devilry in your in your space. 
both of you. Thank you for being here. Yeah. I know um, you mentioned the website uh, is in the works. Yeah. Um, uh, I was wondering, do you have any other special projects you would like to plug? Uh, I normally know, but I, I know that I have to. So um, I co-host Radio Free Golgotha, I'm proud to plug. That's I co-host that with Al. We are very semi-regular, so highly irregular in our release schedule. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, but we'll be back and inform this. We're usually, we're trying to aim for monthly. Um, but that's RadioFreeGolgotha.com. We do Speakeasy of the Dead, which is an online cabaret for fancy necromancers where it's a few papers and talks and things like that and hope to um, have another one soon. Uh, I am, I was going to open a store last Halloween that I decided to delay the re the opening of just given the political climate, it felt a little strange at the time to be like, look at my store, yay me. So um, going a little slower, but um, uh, having had a store before and taking my time with this one, but the pact will be open at some point this year fully. Um, and uh, so yeah, speaking at a couple conferences, uh, doing a few things and continuing to write, uh, even if it's just for me. You've been listening to Southern Bramble, a podcast of Crooked Ways. I'm Marshall. You can find me online at uh, TikTok, Threads, and Instagram at Witch of Southern Light. Um, please check out the link tree in my bio. Uh, you can buy my book, Cunning Words, A Grimoire of Tales and Magic, on Amazon. Uh, there's three different versions, so check it out. You can also, if you are anti-Amazon, find it on Bar the black and white version on Barnes & Noble. Austin, take it away. And I'm Austin Bain X Bramble on Instagram. You can find uh, all of my work at BainXBramble.com. You can also uh, catch me at the Botanica Obscura conference where I'll be doing uh, my lecture, Venenum Venom, The Witching Path of Venus. We'll be going through Spirits of Venus and like how to conduct ourselves uh, in a venereal manner. I'll also be presenting at the Salem Witchcraft and Folklore Festival. Uh, my lecture will be uh, The Ghost in the Shell, Magic Machines and Post-Human Witchcraft craft um and i will also be doing my own lecture on my website uh banexperimental.com called the infernal menagerie where we'll be working with the fantastical spirits um of the earth sky and sea so i hope to catch you there thank you all southern bramble is a patron supported podcast we'd like to thank our patron supporters by name which rafa v tracy timothy the Witch of Patapsco Forest, The Modern Babylon, The Lady Ghost, Shanna, Nico, Marquis, Lisa, Keith, Key, Johnny, John, Jennifer, Jennifer Squared, Jamisa, Giles, Earl, Colby, Callie, Ariella, and Adity. Thank you all so much.